Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello everyone and welcome to this final session of our conference today, which I'm delighted to say is uh, in conversation with Baroness Hale, who of course needs very little introduction, often referred to as a legal trailblazer. Um, she started her career in academia and family law before becoming the youngest and first female law commissioner and after rapid progress through the judicial ranks, the first woman to sit on the Supreme Court, as it became. As its first female president, of course, she oversaw the key uh, judgments in the uh, Brexit cases, known as Miller 1 and Miller 2. She's a regular and passionate speaker about issues such as feminism, equality, and human rights, and we're delighted that as what we call a constitutional practitioner, she's been a member of our review panel. Um, and also delighted that she's here, agreed to speak with us today uh, for this final uh, uh, session of the conference. Um, as ever with the sessions we've been having today, if you're uh, online, please start sending your questions through uh, on Slido. Um, Mike and I will be in conversation uh, with Brenda uh, for the first sort of half hour or so, and then we will take questions from the floor and online. So do please send those in. Um, so I think I'm to kick off. Okay. <laughs> um, and a very broad one to start with, but I just wondered if I could ask you to reflect on how, whether and how the constitution you feel has changed over the course of your career um, as you have sort of seen it shift under you. Oh. Well, I started out, you know, as an academic uh, teaching constitutional and administrative law at the University of Manchester. That's where I began. And the biggest shifts have firstly been, from the lawyer's point of view, have been the development of judicial review of administrative action, which began in the late 60s um, with three landmark cases. Uh, and continued with what people don't realize is often procedural change is as important in making development, which I think is an important point for your report, mm -hmm. as is substantive change. So the change to the procedure for judicial review in the 1970s, again. So we have had a lot more energetic judicial review of administrative action. So that's one change. But that never changed the principle, which was that judicial review was always about the legality of administrative action. It wasn't about the merits. But then came, well, I'm going to leave out the European Union because that made a big change, of course, constitutionally, but I might as well leave that out, mind I? <laughs> Although it did have an impact uh, in a technical way because along came the Human Rights Act. Now, the Human Rights Act undoubtedly does introduce an element of merits judgment into the court's appreciation of what administrative bodies do, because administrative bodies are not allowed to violate fundamental rights. So the courts have to decide whether that is what they have done. And that does involve evaluating the merits of what they have done. So that did make a change. Uh, one of the reasons for saying EU did make a difference is that it was a requirement of EU law that if there was an incompatible provision in an act, in an act of the UK Parliament, the courts had to try and interpret it out of existence. And if they couldn't do that, they had to ignore it. 
Now, under the Human Rights Act, we were allowed to interpret it out of existence, but not to ignore it. But we learnt the techniques of interpreting things out of existence from EU law, and that is still there, sitting in human rights law. I hope that is not regarded as a disadvantage. <laughs> And so do you think, I mean, you, you've spoken there about sort of increasing energy around, as you put it, around judicial review um, and the, that sort of the requirement to take a view on merits under the Human Rights Act. Have those two things together changed the relationship between politicians and the judiciary? The perceptions, perhaps, of... of I think, politicians of the judiciary well, in that relationship. Yes, they, they may have done. Um, the, the civil service used to have, maybe still does have, a booklet called The Judge Over Your Shoulder, which was an attempt to get civil servants to think about the legality of what they were doing or being asked to do or advising government to do before rather than after it got challenged, which seemed to me to be a very good thing. It's not a bad thing. Um, so... But yes, of course, nobody likes being told they can't do something, do they? Especially if it's something that they really feel quite strongly about uh, and think should be done. So it's not surprising that the people who want to do things should feel um, irritated, to put it mildly, if they are told by the, the courts that they shouldn't. But that isn't a good reason for the courts not having the power to do that, because actually the rule of law which means that the law governs the governors as well as the governed, um, is an important feature of actually any constitution, not just ours. It, it's a fundamental of a constitution. Uh, and so the irritation is understandable, but the best politicians, of course, can rise above it. And bringing us right up to date, of course, there may be some irritation on the other side of the equation with politicians who state their willingness to break the law, who want yeah. to stretch the limits of the uh, prerogative powers that um, they have. Well, those are two different things. Indeed. Um, a declared willingness to break the law uh, is something, obviously judges are not going to comment on it, but it's not something that judges would approve of any more than you know, somebody saying, I'm going to burgle your house. <laughs> it's not, not something to be approved of. Um, but on the whole, judges don't make comments, um, unlike politicians. <laughs> A willingness to stretch or test the boundaries, um, that's not necessarily reprehensible. Um, as long as if you do stretch them too far, you're prepared to accept being told that that's what you've done. Mm -hmm. I think. And do you think politicians, today's politicians, have sufficient understanding of uh, rule of law as a, as a foundational principle of our constitution? That's a big question, isn't it? I mean, there are a lot of politicians, and their understanding of this and that is very, very variable. Um, I think I would comment that the public understanding of the Constitution is perhaps not as good as it should be. As we've just been discussing. I'm putting this as politely as I can. Uh, and one of my deep regrets is that the history curriculum no longer insists 
on the 17th century. Now, I think everybody in this country should understand that our constitutional moment was in the 17th century. And we had a revolution, and we established a constitutional settlement in the 17th century. Obviously, it's developed over the subsequent centuries. But people, therefore, have not got the inbuilt sense that we established the sovereignty of parliament and the rule of law as twin principles beginning in that century. Um, and I wish we did. Uh, and so I wouldn't want to say that politicians are any more ignorant than anybody else. In fact, I doubt it. I think they're probably uh, much less so. Uh, but nevertheless, it's something that is regrettable and it ought to be part, just as the knowledge of the written constitutions in the world is pretty common among school children yeah. in, say, the United States, I'm sure in Canada too, and in other comparable places. But it isn't here because there is no basic education about it. I was just right. going to pick up on that. Mm. It's a question I was going to ask you later about exactly that bit. I mean, obviously, not everyone will study the 17th century, even if they, even if it were on the curriculum. At the level of so thinking about, I suppose, citizenship education, mm. as it's become called. Um, what I mean, do you have any thoughts on what would that look like in the kind of society we are now? You know, the, early part of the 21st century, everything is online, mm. everything is an app. You know, should we have the constitution on some kind of app? I mean, is there a way of reaching younger people that, I'm sure people have talked to you about this because of your profile yeah. in these debates. Do you yeah. see any, any particular sort of method or idea or approach that we ought to be mainstreaming in debates like this? I'm sure there should be one. Hmm. Um, educationalists would be better I mean, professional educationalists uh, would be better qualified to answer. One would have to begin with trying to write down the bases of the British Constitution. I don't think that would be too difficult. I mean, think about what every constitution contains. Um, all over the Caribbean, there are written constitutions which basically encapsulate the British Constitution, mm -hmm. plus the European Convention on Human Rights, with local variations and characteristics. But that's what they do. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't be too difficult to say, well, look, we have three institutions of government, or we have a head of state. We have three institutions of government. This is what each of them does. These are the relationships between each of them. Um, and we have three principles of supreme importance, one of which is the sovereignty of parliament mm -hmm. and what that means, uh, the other of which is the rule of law and what that means, and the other of which is the independence of the judiciary and what that means. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it'd be too tricky to put all that into 10 pages probably. Mm -hmm. um, and it'd be great to have that. It's a project for IFG. <laughs> well, I mean, well, IFG would be uniquely actually placed to do just that. Well, I mean, I think we argue in, the, in our final report that it should be a role for this new joint committee that we've um, come up with in a sort of similar way to the Nolan principles, a sort of restatement of, as you say, things we already know. But, absolutely, but I think that would probably be a, just a bit of a higher level mm. of, of depth and maybe complexity. I mean, I'm all in favor of the, the, the idea. But I think just trying to get the basics over to... Most people don't understand the difference between government and parliament. 
It's partly because the government deliberately obscures it, you know, by saying, we are going to pass a law. They say it all the time. And every time they say it, it gets my <laughs> goes. Because, no, they might make rules and regulations, but they don't pass laws. They don't pass acts of parliament. So and it's something as basic as that that people really ought just to have. So to move on to, uh, if you've finished. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, another area um, that we talk about in our final report is this this idea of constitutional acts yeah. um, where we think about the role that Parliament can play, um, could play in defining those. Obviously so far that's something that the courts have effectively done. What in your, yes, what in your mind makes something a constitutional statute? Well, that's a very big question, because uh, I actually asked that of your report, and I'm not sure that you've entirely <laughs> answered it. Um, uh, but uh, I like the idea that changes to the basic way we are governed, which include the conduct of elections and the franchise and things like that, should not just happen either quickly or simply, and there should be some parliamentary process for identifying those things which make such a change. And we can all do, well, in fact, your paper by Philip Rycroft has done a wonderful job in identifying just how much. Now, everybody knew the devolution statutes were important. I mean, they did get a pretty good degree of scrutiny. Everybody knew, I think, that the Human Rights Act was important, and that got quite a decent degree of, of scrutiny. But there are all sorts of other things that happened that people don't know so much about. I mean, thinking about the electoral changes is, is one of them, but the, oh, and the fixed term parliaments, um, both enactment and repeal, of course, that led to all sorts of interesting things. Right? If, you, if you enact something to um, get rid of a rule of the common law, what happens when you repeal the act? <laughs> how, do you, how do you restore the status quo ante, having done that? That's a really interesting technical question. Um, but I don't think it's impossible to work out you know, what would be something that would have an important effect on the way in which we are governed and the way our institutions, our institutions of government work and the powers that they have. And you grimaced slightly when I referred to the role that the courts have played hitherto in, in thinking about what oh. is a constitutional... Yes. Well, that's only yes. because it's, it's not a particularly well-developed idea. Um, and all it does is insulate certain pieces of legislation from implied repeal. So it's another version of the doctrine of legality which insulates fundamental rights from um, being affected by a sidewind um, in legislation that wasn't really intended about that or wasn't expressed about what it was doing. So it's just another um, tool of statutory interpretation to try and avoid um, constitutional solecisms, I think. Um, and, uh, the trouble is, it doesn't always... I mean, it's not a very well-developed idea. It's only been deployed on one or two occasions, really. Uh, and that's why I was grimacing. Really. Uh, it's not a, it, the court's role in it is not good enough to build 
on, whereas Parliament's role on it would be. So you, you agree with our suggestion that yeah. Parliament should play yeah. a role in this? Yeah, no, I agree with yeah. all seven of your suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good to hear. Very good um, to <laughs> because I... Well, I better get them out of my handbag. <laughs> just, yeah. 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 They're not tattooed on your arm. Um, <laughs> because I'm specialising in big questions. Um, obviously, a, the thrust of our, of our recommendations in this final report is, is to talk about um, sort of giving the, the Constitution a, a, a greater degree of protection in terms of how Parliament deals with it, with new laws, but also indeed with existing laws and not changing them through secondary legislation and so on. Also thinking about ensuring that changes to the Constitution have um, a, a good degree of political buy-in and um, uh, public, indeed public um, buy-in. The and sort of implicit in that, obviously, is a reading of our current constitution that it is too easy for an executive to change. What's your reading of, you know, do you agree with that analysis of, of where, of, of the relationship between the key institutions in our constitution at the moment, between parliament, the courts, um, and uh, the executive, that, that we do have an executive that is a, a little overstrong? Well, it's the nature of the beast in the Westminster model that you choose your government because it can command the support of the House of Commons. So you haven't got to be too surprised that it enjoys the support of the, United, of the, of the House of Commons. Uh, it's, it's the model. But on the other hand, clearly um, it can be taken too far. Um, it can be exploited uh, one, one of the things that always strikes me as being um, well, interesting and curious, and probably most people don't know, is the extent to which the government controls the business of the House of Commons. I think most people don't realise that. Um, and probably most lawyers don't realise that. And so when they trumpet the sovereignty of Parliament, <laughs> they don't realise, well, actually, the government controls the business of the House to a very large extent. Um, and not only that, it's regarded as maybe even unconstitutional um, when uh, the House of Commons says, no, we're not having that, as happened, uh, as we all know, in 2019. Um, now, one might think that that was a good thing, that that was Parliament, the democratically elected Parliament, um, saying to the government, well, you can't just do exactly what you want to do. Um, so we need, a, we need a much more nuanced debate about the extent to which the executive should be able to control Parliament. Of course, there's all sorts of things like Henry VIII powers, you know, where uh, the government uh, is able to get Parliament to pass a law which allows the government to amend primary, that is, legislation of the UK Parliament. Now, the former Lord Chief Justice, Lord Judge, has long had a thing about this, um, but I think he's right to have a thing about it because it's fundamentally um, very suspect to allow that to happen. There are also the procedures for dealing with delegated legislation, which is something you haven't yet got into, but in a way, um, the fact that delegated legislation uh, can't be amended uh, means that there's very little that, that Parliament 
can do, even if it needs an affirmative resolution. You know, the, the practical difference between a negative resolution and an affirmative resolution is, you know, it just looks better, doesn't it? Yes. Parliament has approved it, as opposed to Parliament has not disapproved it. Uh, and the government can say that. Um, but nevertheless, it does mean, I think the whole relationship between government and Parliament is a great big thing, which um, needs to continue to be worked on. But as you say, I think um, those of us who spend their time thinking about it yeah. see the extent of the control that the executive has and some of the inadequacies of the processes, but it's, it's you know, you, you need to be paying quite a lot of attention to understand how those relationships are working. Mm. And most people have much better things to do with their lives. Um, Mike, I'm going to hand over to you. Okay, well, I just wanted to ask you a bit more about the Supreme Court. Um, and going right back to the beginning, um, you were an early advocate of it, is that right? I think you were on the side of... I was an early supporter of it. Yeah. Um, the advocacy came from uh, the great Lord Bingham, of course. Um, who was senior law lord uh, when I joined mm -hmm. the law lords, and to a lesser extent, Lord Steyn. Mm -hmm. um, and they were so clear about this is obviously the right thing to do. But I think the government or the officials thought that it would be uncontroversial. <laughs> you know, among the package of things that were announced in June uh, 2003, you know, this was you know, the abolition of the Lord Chancellor is one thing, the creation of a Ministry of Justice is another. Oh, well, and the, um, yes, it was all part of the creation of a Ministry of Justice <laughs> and a Judicial Appointments Commission, which really was uncontroversial. Yeah. They thought the Supreme Court would be uncontroversial. It turned out that it, it was wasn't. a little bit more <laughs> controversial. But, um, so what, and what, what was it that persuaded you that this was the right way to go? Because as you said, there was controversy about it and there was, there was a lot of debate about it. Well, the, con the controversy was on the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm -hmm. And you know, there are all sorts of unintended consequences that can happen. Mm -hmm. Um, the two that were the most concerning um, were, if you're part of Parliament, Parliament votes its own resources. Mm -hmm. Doesn't have to go through the normal Treasury budgeting process. Right. If you're no longer part of Parliament, your resources are going to have to go through the Treasury budgeting process. We did manage eventually to establish that it was done basically independently of the Ministry of Justice's bid. Mm -hmm. And so it hasn't proved to be such a practical problem, but you could see that it could be seen as one. Mm -hmm. The other one, which is not really Supreme Court related so much as Lord Chancellor related, was that, and this is so typically British, there was a real concern that not having a very senior member of the government who was also a very senior lawyer mm -hmm. speaking up in cabinet for the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary would be a bad thing mm -hmm. for the justice system. Now I say only in, only in the UK could it be said, you know, <laughs> that that sort of blurring of the distinction <laughs> in the separation of powers uh, was a good thing rather than a bad thing. But we have seen the downgrading of the influence of the Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State mm. for Justice mm. um, for a variety of reasons, mm. uh, which I think has probably meant that there has been a lesser understanding because if you have a person of the stature of Lord Mackay of Clashburn, who I 
happen to think was the greatest Lord Chancellor that we have had for some considerable time, but I would say that, wouldn't I? Um, that's because he gave me my first full-time <laughs> judicial job. Um, but uh, he's a man of such integrity and such wisdom and such scholarship. You know, if the Prime Minister wanted to do something and he said, don't think that's right. If, I'm sure this will have happened from time to time. Mm -hmm. He will be listened to. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas, obviously, if you have a, a, a less senior and not even a lawyer who isn't a judge, who isn't whatever, um, saying the same sort of thing, if they do, uh, well, then it's not going to have the weight. So it's, those are the two things mm -hmm. about, mm -hmm. about it that were... I mean, I, I discount all the not wanting to leave the Palace of Westminster. Anybody in their right minds would want to leave the Palace of Westminster. <laughs> <laughs> Having just been there this afternoon. Um, but uh, the, the, the reasons for it were constitutional clarity mm -hmm. and principle. And we have much better facilities in the, um, in the old Middlesex Guildhall. Mm you can walk in off the square and come and see what the Supreme Court's up to. Uh, so having the building is important. Having the building which we can run and work out in our own way. Being able to give judgment in a way that makes sense to the big wide world, as opposed to those of you who know, we used to give judgment on the mock debate that the report of the appellate committee be agreed to. <laughs> Nobody knew what on earth we were <laughs> agreeing to, or not, as the case may be. Whereas now we have these nice little YouTube videos where we try and explain what each decision is about. So we can be much more transparent and we can engage the public to a much greater extent than we could before. So those are the, there are loads of advantages, but those, those are the ones, I think. And then, then in terms of the, I suppose, the evolution of the, the court in terms of its powers, mm. um, I mean, I was just thinking about this sort of comparatively. Obviously, it's, you know, it's unlike um, equivalent bodies in federal systems which have strike down powers. Oh. Or do you think it, there are more similarities in that? No, I, I think the jurisdiction of the court did not change at all yeah. um, from the jurisdiction of the appellate committee of the House of Lords, save in one respect, which was the ability of the UK top court to strike down acts of the devolved parliaments, mm -hmm. which was a consequence of devolution. Right. And the task had originally been given to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, and that's because it was thought that the debate, the battle, would be between the UK Parliament and the devolved Parliament. In fact, it's not usually that, it's between the devolved Parliament and the government, but mm. that was thought where the battle would be. Mm. And so it was not thought appropriate that members of the House, or that the House of Lords should be adjudicating upon such battles. So it went to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council where exactly the same judges sat, but in a different building. Right. So once the Supreme Court was separate from Parliament, that jurisdiction came to the Supreme Court. But it was exercised in exactly the same way that it had been by the Privy Council. So our powers did not change mm. at all, um, nor do we want them to. Well, I was going to follow up and say, <laughs> well, I mean... I think I speak for probably <laughs> judiciary. <laughs> do, do you, because that's part of the, the sort of, you know, the, 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 the skepticism or hostility that, that is out there amongst some politicians, but more generally in the media, is, uh, well, you know, um, the risk that judges will want to 
you know, encroach further and further. And, I mean, strike-down powers in particular in relation to yeah. the UK Parliament, I mean, could you ever anticipate that being a direction of travel? Well, I personally um, would not welcome it, and I don't know a, a member of the senior judiciary who would welcome it. Mm. Um, we did, of course, have the equivalent of strike-down powers under the European Communities Act, mm. Mm. as I explained earlier. Uh, very rarely needed to be exercised, but it did happen from time to time that one just had to sidestep an incompatible provision. It, but of course that was in relation to EU law, which was a separate body of law mm -hmm. that sat on top of the national laws of each yeah. of the member states in its own competence. And of course its competence was, was limited. So it would be very unlikely that it would uh, bring one into the sorts of controversies that go on about, shall we say, in the States, you know, about mm, abortion mm, or whatever. Mm. But if we were to have a written constitution, it would be inevitable that a court of some sort, whether it was a Supreme Court with general jurisdiction or whether it was a constitutional court on continental lines, would have to have the power to say, that acts even of the, well, we'll call it the federal parliament, but we're not a federation yeah. now, um, uh, could, are unconstitutional. Yeah. Yeah. It's an inevitable consequence of having a written constitution, virtually inevitable. <laughs> of course, almost everywhere else in the civilized world puts up with it perfectly well. <laughs> <laughs> There are just some examples where it obviously doesn't work very well, but everybody else seems to be able to cope. But I don't think that we'll ever get there. <laughs> I've got one more question and then we should probably open up. Um, I've got to, got to ask you about prorogation and that whole moment. Um, it's another huge question, I'm afraid. I mean, in, do you think that was, looking back at it now, it must feel extraordinary to look back at, at what was probably, I'm sure, an incredibly stressful and fraught and difficult moment. Um, do you think that was the moment of greatest constitutional peril for the British constitution in your lifetime? Ooh, probably not. But What's I've above not, it? What? I've not been asked that question before and um, there the might be... Do you think there the might be? There the, the might have been others. Um, uh, but I would have to think yeah. back. Um, but... In terms of looking at what the limits of the government's power to shut down Parliament mm. are, of course, that's a huge question. Um, it's one thing for the government to be able to say, well, we will dissolve Parliament and have a general election, because in a way that is yeah. reinvigorating the democracy and so on. It is quite another thing for a government to say, let's shut down Parliament when it suits us, for as long as it suits us, because they're getting in the way of what we want to do. Mm. When it is part of Parliament's job, as we were saying earlier, <laughs> to get in the way of what they... <laughs> it may be an easily surmountable obstacle, but it is part of its job. So it was a supremely important question. Mm. Um, and uh, no doubt we would have preferred not to have had to mm. answer it, but we had no choice. Um, we had no choice because the High Court in England had said 
this is not for us, it's too political. <laughs> so Parliament has been prorogued. And the Court of Session in Scotland had said, this is constitutional. <laughs> you know, this is about the limits of power. Yes, of course it's for us. And by the way, it was unlawful. And by the way, that means it didn't happen. Mm. Now, there's, o there's only one UK Parliament. Uh, it either had or had not been prorogued. So we didn't have a choice. We had to take the case. You know, when everybody says, well, why did you have to... You don't have a choice. You have that. That was a particularly good example of not having a choice. Um, but of course, having had to take the case, we had to do it very quickly mm -hmm. because there would have been no point in taking a case where we might have agreed with Scotland, which in fact we did, uh, if we took it five weeks into the prorogation, it would have made no difference. So it had to be done very quickly. But sometimes doing things quickly is beneficial. Mm -hmm. It certainly concentrates the minds of, of everybody involved. I mean, all the lawyers involved and all the, I think, members of the public as well who are interested, and they were interested, um, and, and all the judges. So there is something to be said for having to do things uh, I mean, the, speed. The account of it in your book, which, by the way, I recommend hugely, I mean, is, is oh, so interesting, just about the, the, the process, the, how you handled the challenge of speed, and obviously you had to get everyone's independently formed judgments as well. It's very, very interesting to see behind the scenes of that. Well, it's, it, it was interesting, uh, the, the level of agreement that there was mm. in the court. Mm. It was pretty strong right from the word go, and it was a question of tweaking the details of what we said yeah. rather than... And the other thing that became absolutely apparent was that the Scots were right. Mm about the effect of unlawful advice to Her Majesty, mm. which in a way hadn't been thought about very much. Now, everybody was concentrating on whether yeah, the advice yeah. was lawful or unlawful, rather than on what the consequence of it was. Mm. And it wasn't until the last day of the hearing when we started asking counsel to uh, tell us what they thought the consequence, if we were to. Um, allow the English appeal and dismiss the Scottish appeal. Mm. Which is quite interesting and instructive, isn't it? Mm. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what that <laughs> I don't know what that says about what they thought of us, but there we go. Yep. Back to you, Helen. Okay, I think we will um, turn to questions. Um, we've got a raving mic as ever um, and I've got some questions coming through online. Alex, can you come to the lady here in the front? Hi, my name is Mahek. I'm a law student at the University of Warwick. Um, in my uh, second year studying constitutional law and other areas of law, something that we've increasingly noticed is an attack, dare I put it that way, on the rule of law um, by institutions, whether that's through legal aid cuts, for example, or, or, or other methods. Um, how can the court enforce the importance of the rule of law um, without being unjustly attacked for ad advancing judicial supremacy, <laughs> as we've constantly seen in the media, unfortunately. Sorry, that's a bit of a... I'll take another one. couple of questions so that you can do them together. Well, I'll, yes, okay. In the, the but I'll have to keep that in my head. Yes, yes I'll, I'll remind you of them. Mm. <laughs> the gentleman with the glasses. Hiya, Gareth Williams, loosely from Wales. Um, 
I was very grateful as a sort of lapsed historian for you referring to the 17th century, but what I wanted to ask was, you know, you said that parliamentary sovereignty is one of the cornerstones of our constitution, mm -hmm. but wouldn't you agree that parliamentary sovereignty has become debased because when it was first thought about, it was about the agreement between the monarchy, the House of Lords and the House of Commons, and with the Parliament Act, and now with the practical impracticality, if I can put it like that, of the monarchy intervening in politics, in reality, the sovereignty of the par Parliament has been reduced to the sovereignty of the Commons, which in turn means, except in very exceptional circumstances, the sovereignty of, of the um, government of the day. So isn't that a fundamental problem of our unwritten constitution, is that one of the pillars of it is not what it was set out to be? Do you want to just take those two? Well, could I, got I, them in your mind? Yes, could I do yes, that? Yes. I yep. think so, because otherwise, <laughs> no, no, other, otherwise we'll get too, too complicated, really. Um, there are things the courts can do about attacks on the rule of law. As I was mentioning earlier, and I'm sure you know perfectly well, there is judicial review of administrative action, which is there to keep public authorities generally in line with their legal um, powers and obligations and proper exercise of discretion within its proper bounds. Yeah, that's, that's what it's for. So we can do that. We can't tell anybody that there should be a better legal aid system. You know, we can't strike down LASPO as being unconstitutional, um, much though some people might like to do that. Uh, as, and it'd be interesting to speculate, I and mean, this would be a great project, wouldn't it? Supposing we had a written constitution which had something about access to justice, because the rule of access to justice is an important part of the rule of law. Um, and um, could, could uh, a constitutional court strike down LASPO or aspects of it as unconstitutional? We did strike down aspects of the regulations made under LASPO, um, though even that's been a little bit... Mm, I shan't say anything more, but we did. Um, because obviously the use of powers so as effectively to defeat access to uh, the courts or, um, or tribunals is, is a, an attack on the rule of law. So we, we could look at delegated legislation in that way, but of course we can't look at primary legislation. So that's, that's basically what we can do, the balance of what we can do. But we have to keep vigilant about trying to do that. And one of the very best judgments, I think, that ever came from the Supreme Court, leaving aside the prorogation judgment, of course, um, is, is the one in the, the case about the tribunal, employment tribunal fees. It's an absolute stonking judgment um, by my successor. Uh, which says all sorts of important things about the rule of law. So there are things that can be done, but within the limits. Now, that's very interesting about the... Um, uh, well, we were agreeing earlier, weren't we, that um, the, the Westminster model means that uh, the government generally can get its way in the House of Commons, which does mean that parliamentary sovereignty, to a large extent, turns into uh, the sovereignty of the government of the day for as long as it can command uh, a majority in Parliament. Of course, the question that comes from your question is, what do we do about it? I doubt very much whether you would want to reinstate the power of the monarch. <laughs> I wasn't to, no, no, but uh, you are right to say, you know, it's the king in Parliament who is sovereign. So the big question is, what about the House of Lords? Um, and of course, there is 
there is now a fairly strong movement in certain quarters, which include the Brown Commission, um, to strengthen the powers of the House of Lords in constitutional matters. Although as I read that report, it was going to take them away in non-constitutional matters, which I would not agree with. You know, I think they should be prepared to exercise the powers that they have for the sake of reinforcing democracy by putting a break on particularly um, controversial and not accepted by the public things. So I think I'd rather be in favor of um, a greater use of the powers that the House of Lords has and some consideration about what we should do about the membership of the House of Lords, which is clearly far too big, uh, completely lacking in democratic legitimacy, as opposed to if one had what a lot of people would think would be a practical and good solution, which would be a partially appointed and a partially elected um, second chamber. Um, I'm not saying that that's what I think, but I just think a lot of people do think that will be a, a way forward. But of course, we're back to Turkey's voting for Christmas, aren't we? Anything that gets put forward that is going to reduce the power of the House of Commons <laughs> tends to get uh, enthusiastically adopted by the opposition, and then, surprise, surprise, not so enthusiastically adopted if the opposition gets into government. And this is all completely understandable. Um, which is why I'm so pleased with the Institute for Government for looking at rather less radical things that could make a difference and which might just possibly get done. Because I, I think there are a lot of small steps that we could do. We, there are, I'm sure there are things in parliamentary procedure that could be improved to give the Commons more control over what they do. I think there are things in the Lords that could be improved. I think these various suggestions that the Institute has come up with I think also would be improvements. So I'm all for small steps myself. Of course, you wouldn't have come up with any of them without the Bennett Institute as well. Um, <laughs> oh, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mike. You did that very nicely. <laughs> she did, and I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, yeah. It's because we're here. We both forget. Yes. If we're in Cambridge, we put it the other way around. Um, I have an anonymous question for you, which you might like to think of while someone else has asked you a question, which is what's the most urgent constitutional reform that the UK needs would be. You might, from what you've just said, go for something relatively small. Yes, I don't know. Mm. Um, and we'll take another couple of questions. Alex, this gentleman here. Uh, yeah, Dave Nita, a lawyer and lecturer. Um, my question is prompted by uh, what you said earlier in your uh, talk about the, uh, the Caribbean countries that have their written constitutions. Yeah. And having visited the Constitutional Court on Constitutional Hill in South Africa um, and was left entirely impressed with what they did and uh, given that they would have, it's one of the newest constitutions we have because they would have borrowed from other countries and so on. Um, Vietnam looking to America early on about their, to their constitution. So the question then for you is, is there anything that you see in jurisdictions abroad, foreign places that you like, that in the construction of a UK constitution codified, mm. you, you know, whether it's the content or the form or the structure, the practice mm. that appeals to you that we should include as something that we learn from abroad and we implement it here. Yeah. Um, I think that's a very good pair of questions to end on, I have to say. Yes, yes. Well, 
Um, the South African Constitution is a thing of beauty. And the South African Constitutional Court is also a thing of beauty. One of the reasons that it is a thing of beauty, of course, is that it includes social rights as well as civil rights, civil and political rights. But of course, experience in South Africa has indicated that it's pretty difficult for any court to produce concrete um, expressions of, and Mrs. Grootwell never got a house. Now, most of you will know what I'm talking about, this, this right, right to a house, uh, which uh, the, the Constitutional Court upheld, but it didn't actually materialize. And this is, this is the difficulty with, with social rights, as opposed to, if you're telling the government not to do something, that's much easier than telling the government to do something. Uh, so much though I love the South African model, um, I, I'm not sure, well, I'm sure it wouldn't really work here. We, any attempts that we make to try and introduce a little bit of social rights into the operation of the Human Rights Act has not really worked. I mean, the only route in basically is through discrimination. You know, that you can have, we have several cases where uh, the government had introduced restrictions on welfare benefits or on other sorts of benefits uh, in a discriminatory way. Uh, and so that gave us the possibility of asking whether that could be justified. And some of us subjected the government's declared justification to pretty strict scrutiny and said, no, you haven't, you haven't justified it. But others thought that this was really the court going too far into socioeconomic questions. So it's really difficult in this country to do anything like that. I think what we, can, what we do learn is in the area of civil and political rights, we can learn particularly from jurisdictions such as Canada, where uh, their charter is not identical to the European Convention, but it's very similar. And the concepts they're using are very similar. And we tend to look to Canadian decisions to, to see um, how they are handling a, a similar problem. Uh, because Canada is a good example of a country which gets on perfectly well with this sort of constitution. doesn't seem to over-politicise the judges or anything like that. On the whole, it doesn't. But that's possibly because, as a Canadian Supreme Court judge once said uh, in an academic meeting that I was at, well, uh, we in Canada, we are adherents of the extreme middle. <laughs> I thought that's wonderful. I'd love that <laughs> adherence of the extreme middle. So that's, that, that's my, my, my thinking about that. What's the most urgent constitutional reform? Now, that's really tricky. Isn't it? Now, I could say, obviously, the Bennett IFG um, <laughs> report. Um, and I certainly think that would be um, a good thing. But I do wonder whether there would be something to be said for putting on a more compulsory basis some of the codes of conduct in both public, parliamentary, and indeed civil service life. Um, but particularly the ministerial code. 
because that's where we've seen the greatest um, invasions, modifications, restrictions. Yeah, anyway, things haven't happened in the way that everybody thought that they would happen. <laughs> you know, yeah. We're back to Peter Hennessy and the good chaps theory of government, aren't we? Um, that people were expected to know what the rules were and what the limits were and just not to do them. Uh, well, that's probably never been particularly satisfactory. <laughs> but I think we've been shown in recent years that it isn't satisfactory. Uh, and I, th I think that's what I'd do um, were I in any position to do anything, which fortunately you may think I am not. <laughs> well, I'm very pleased to hear you say that because it's something the RFG has separately to review, also argued more particularly in relation to the ministerial code. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. Brenda, for joining us today and for answering our very big and challenging questions, um, with which you clearly had no difficulty at all. Um, can I ask everyone to thank uh, Brenda Hale for joining us today? And I'll hand over to you, Mike, to... Uh, Say some final words? Yes, I mean, really very few final words because I'm, I'm aware that I think I, I stand between you and a drink. So uh, it's not a good place to be. I mean, I just want to add my thanks as well um, to you, Brenda. It's been a really, uh, really interesting discussion. And um, you passed a high bar today, actually, because when I told my kids what I was going to do and who uh, try and name the names of people I might be talking to, I, I'm nearly always met with utter apathy, disinterest. But when I mentioned you, it was uh, <laughs> hence the selfie earlier. So um, that was great. Um, I just want to, two things really. One is to say a few words of thank you. Uh, and then I want to just talk a little bit about the review and you know what, what comes next, I suppose, what comes after. Um, so the thanks my, are, I'll try not to make it too much like a wedding speech, but the main <laughs> thanks are to Hannah and to the Institute for Government, who've obviously been um, our partners in this project. And, um, you know, 18 months to do the Constitution really is nothing, but it's also a long time as well. And we've worked together, I think, in an incredibly productive and, and collegial way. Um, I should add as well that Hannah wasn't in post when this project began. She was involved in it. But she inherited, as part of her new role, this project. And um, I was delighted to see, you know, has really grabbed it and has driven it and been uh, made a fantastic contribution. So thank you. Thanks to all your colleagues at IFG who've been involved, people, people delivering the event today, but also the research team. I can see some of them around um, who've been great to work with. Above all, I really, really want to thank Jess, who I can't see. I can't see her. <laughs> so I can't embarrass her. her. So if she's in that other room, I think she should come in <laughs> and we should all give her a round of applause or something. But <laughs> she has, uh, you know, to, I mean, to get this report over the line, but, but beyond, has really done a terrific job in uh, coordinating all of this. I... <laughs> So thank you, Jess, for coming in as well. And a quick word of thanks as well to Mr. Van Du Bose, who's been a very generous supporter of um, this project. And indeed, to, who's on our board and also to our other expert um, uh, advisors. Um, the review itself, 
Um, I suppose there's two, there's two things going on here, aren't there? There, there? We are presenting to you some very concrete proposals, which we set out uh, this morning, uh, and we've had a chance, I think, to kick those round a bit in some of the sessions. Those, we will continue to um, put, make the case for those proposals. The next phase, actually, it, which Jess is leading, is actually to go and talk to lots of politicians. I think they're going to do the party conference circuit, lucky them. Um, but beyond, you know, we are very keen to actually sort of get these proposals out there and to get um, politicians in particular, but other stakeholders to engage. I think there's a second um, sort of level at which the project works, which is about arguments and ideas. And I mean, I said this this morning, and I really meant it, that for me, one of the real objectives here was to try to get people in and around this world of constitutional politics or constitutional practice, but also the world of politics and government to have better conversations about the constitution. And I think today is exactly the kind of conversations that I wanted to spawn. Obviously, there are many more conversations that need to happen and that we hope this will kickstart. So my final word of thanks is to you all for being such an engaged uh, audience and coming up with some really great questions throughout the day. You've certainly earned your drink. Thank you. <laughs>Thanks from me to you, Mike, for partnering with us on this. Uh, the IFG hasn't historically had a lot of partnerships, and actually we've really seen the value of, of working with an institute like yours and all the insight and connection that's given us to the academic community, where we hope that this uh, uh, work will continue to have resonance as well as in a sort of more active uh, political uh, space. So thank you for that. And just finally to say your drinks are downstairs. So <laughs> thank you all for joining us. <laughs>